seriously, it, it's just so nice, as uh, uh, Christine Kamner was saying, it's been six months, six months since uh, we were together on a Wednesday night, and man, it feels like six years in some ways. Um, I just, I, I was talking to someone uh, before the service, and, and we were just saying, uh, well, I, I was saying it, um, I, I, I think they already knew it, but I said, it's, I realize how important being together with people is only once I don't have it, right? It's like once you don't have it and then you come back and you have it again, you just go, oh, that's why God thought this was important, right? That's why God tells us to, you know, don't stop meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, not just to check things off your, off your list, but because he's saying, you need this. <laughs> Other people they need this. So thanks so much, again, just for um, your faithfulness, um, for how you have reached out to the community. That's been one of the coolest things is seeing how Timberline family members have been serving. Sometimes it's their actual neighbors. Um, sometimes it's, it's, it's people that they don't know at all, but they put a flower pot together and they bring it to them. And just all these cool ways that people are serving one another during this time. Um, let me make a couple quick announcements, if I can, and then we're going to jump into our teaching here. Um, one is we're going to be doing an outdoor baptism out at Pelican Lakes in Windsor, and that's on a Friday, September 18th at 6 p.m. So if, um, if you or maybe someone you know has maybe never made that, that step of um, public profession of faith by water baptism. This would be a great time to do it. Hopefully it won't be snowy. If it's snowy like yesterday, like, would, you know, no, we won't do it. But um, if you're interested in that, uh, this coming Sunday I'll be teaching our baptism class, uh, Sunday the 13th at 10 a.m., uh, and I think it's in the student center is, is where it is. But I would also invite you, if, if you've been baptized before and you just want to, I want to come and support my family, uh, people that maybe I don't even know, but they're my family. Uh, come, please show up. We would love to have you there. Um, and then last thing is we're going to be taking each week, as we always do, we take communion. Um, we'll, we'll be doing a little bit different. They're um, these little things that are like hermetically sealed kind of things, so they're pretty safe. When I invite you to take communion, if you don't feel comfortable taking it, that is fine. You do not need to at all. Uh, we don't have uh, gluten-free elements this week. They're on a back order. So um, hopefully we'll have them next week. So that's, that's kind of the situation with those. So uh, we're, we're starting a, a new series. And um, as you've, uh, well, you haven't seen from the title because I don't have it up there. I'm supposed to. I, um, I'm now trying to control some of this myself. And it's not always the best thing. But we'll see. Hopefully I can. Oh, there it is. Look at that. I'm good. Um, <clears throat> look, looking at a series, Jesus Behaving Badly. And what I mean by that is we're going to be looking at some of these vignettes in the Gospels where Jesus says something, he does something, and if, if, you're, if you're a careful reader, you're kind of, like, uncomfortable. <laughs> Maybe you're even offended a little bit, or you just kind of go, oh. That's so, like, I would not have included that, you know, kind of thing. Jesus says a lot of things like that. You know, sometimes he says, um, turn the other cheek. Other times he says, um, sell your cloak and buy a sword. Boy, 
wait, are you an extremist or, you know, are you a pacifist? Like, where do you land on these issues? Sometimes the things he says to women, you go, man, is, is this guy like a misogynist? Or is he an egalitarian? Like, I'm not, I'm not sure where he lands. He's almost a paradox to me because I can't quite figure out where he lands. And here's one of the things about Scripture that I will always encourage us to. I need to be really careful that I don't bring my conception of what I want Jesus to be like. You know what I mean by that? And, and I, I, I look for confirmation, I have confirmation bias. And then I just weed out all the stuff that I don't like. And uh, of course, at the end of the day, Jesus ends up looking a lot like Brent. <laughs> he thinks like Brent, and he acts like Brent, and he likes the things that Brent likes. And, and I need to, I don't, I don't uh, C.S. Lewis used to say, I want my neighbor, not my idea of my neighbor. Likewise, I want Jesus, not my idea of Jesus. And so when we come to these, we need to let it say, this is, if this is the real Jesus, that's who I want, not my idea of Jesus. And we're going to come across a number of these um, sayings, encounters, events that I think we're going to be puzzled at times. And so tonight we're looking at specifically the question of, um, is Jesus ethnocentric, or let me say it more extreme, is he a little racist, or is he an inclusivist? Did, did Jesus give preferential treatment to maybe his own ethnic group over others? Does he allow for that? Or is he, again, what we would think of as something more of an inclusivist? And of course, racism isn't a very um, thing that we ever talk about, right, or see in the news or anything like that. Um, not very relevant. Racism is, there's nothing exclusive to the modern era about being ethnocentric or being racist. Racism and uh, being ethnocentric was alive and well in the ancient world. In fact, it's been alive and well in about every single culture at all times. Um, Prejudice, it's typically in the ancient world, it wasn't focused so much on physical features like skin color, and that sort of thing, but on ancestry, on lineage, um, on, on your ethnicity, that's, that's where this would come into play. And so oftentimes, you know, we think, we hear words like xenophobia, right? I heard someone say the other day when uh, was talking about, they said, is that like fear of Xena, the warrior princess? And I was like, what? No, no. Uh, xenos is the Greek word meaning foreign, other, unknown, and so it's this idea of things that are unknown to you, they're foreign, you just kind of has, have like a hesitancy for, and then maybe you start to form certain ideas of that. But most ancient peoples viewed themselves as being in some way superior lineage or ethnically, uh, meaning like I'm, I'm a part of the true whatever, and they viewed other people who weren't in that as typically inferior, um, it was the Greeks who, who coined the phrase barbarian. They coined it because um, it's, it's one of those words like a onomatopoeia, you know, that's like where the word sounds like what you're saying. Because when they heard all these foreigners speaking, they said, they just sound like bar, 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 bar. <laughs> they thought they were babbling, so they called them barbarians. They, they coined this term. Um, and, uh, Mary uh, Baird, professor of classics at Cambridge University, uh, writes this. The Greeks painted a contemptuous picture of the Persians as, here's, here's how the Greeks described the Persians, trousered, meaning pants, 
trouser-decadent softies who wore far too much perfume. <laughs> it says, then the Romans came along and minus the trousers, said pretty much the exact same thing about the Greeks. And many of the Jews, too, in the Second Temple period, or the first century world that we're looking at today, many Jews thought of themselves, not all, as being superior that to, to others. After all, they were God's chosen people in their own history. Um, and so, you know, hatred for kind of the uncommon or the unknown was really, really... Uh, Typical. There's a, there's a book called Sirach. Uh, Sirach is like a second century BC, so um, intertestamental or second uh, temple era Jewish writing. And in, in the book, um, the high priest Simon, he announces a blessing over his nation, Israel, and then curses over the ones that were around them, bordering them, and it goes like this. Two nations my soul detests. The third is not even a people. Who lives, those who live in Seir and the Philistines and the foolish people that live in Shechem. That's Syriac 50. The people from Seir were the Edomites. These are the descendants of, um, the descendants of Esau, Jacob's brother. The Philistines were the sea people, like just to the west of, of them. And, and the Samaritans were the people that he meant by it. They're not even a people. They're not even a people. I don't, I don't even think of them as people in this way. So the question is, was Jesus just a part of his culture? That's a good question. I mean, Jesus grew up in this milieu. Um, was he merely kind of the byproduct, or did he somehow rise above, transcend those cultural norms? Because those are the cultural norms. Um, and one of the most surprising events that happens uh, that, that we're going to look at tonight is Jesus has an encounter with a Gentile woman who comes to him on behalf of her daughter who's demon-possessed. And so um, what we find is, let me see if I can go to, uh, I've got a map here just so we can, Did I not even get it up and this is you putting it back there? Oh, okay. I have no idea. I was going to show you a map, but maybe I won't show you a map. I guess I won't. Tell me if a map pops up. Um, so essentially, Jesus spends most of his time, if you can kind of think of a map of, of, of Israel, he spends most of his time in ministry around the Sea of Galilee, mostly the northern side of that. And in chapter 15, Matthew chapter 15 is where we're going to be reading if you want to turn to it. In Matthew 15, Jesus has just spent uh, quite a bit of time around the Sea of Galilee. There's the feeding of the 5,000 event, um, the time where he walks on the water, the troubled seas out to his apprentices. And it's, it's just been a heavy ministry season time for him. He wants to get away. And so he goes to the region of Tyre and Sidon, which means he heads west over to the Mediterranean coast and goes to the port city of, of Tyre, and then goes directly up north to Sidon. And we don't really know why he goes. Um, it could be, you know, Herod Antipas uh, had just killed his cousin John, the Baptist, and had, had growing worries about Jesus. Could have been that. It could have been, you know, there's, there's this increasing harassment from the religious leaders. Maybe he just wanted to get away from them. All we know is he wanted to go there, and he wanted not... He, he didn't want people to know about it. He just wanted quiet, and he wanted time with his students. Um, in fact, we know, I think it's in Mark 7, that 
we're told uh, that uh, he says he entered a house and did not want anyone to know it. So he's, he's wanting this time away. But Jesus' reputation as a healer, a teacher, it precedes him there. And a woman from the region hears about his arrival, and she comes to see him. So let's, let's look at this passage here. If you, have, uh, if you have your Bibles with you, it's Matthew chapter 15, verse 21. We read this, leaving that place, Jesus, that, that is the Sea of Galilee, Jesus withdrew to the region of Tyre and Sidon. It says, a Canaanite woman from that vicinity came to him crying out, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. My daughter is demon-possessed and suffering terribly. Jesus did not answer a word. So his disciples came to him and urged him, send her away, for she keeps crying out after us. He answered her, to the woman, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. The woman came and knelt before him. Second request, Lord, help me, she said. He replied, it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. Yes, it is, sir, she said. Even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from the master's table. Then Jesus said to her, woman, you have great faith. Your request is granted. And her daughter was healed, we're told, at that very moment. Do you get it? <laughs> I mean, he called her a dog, right? There's no way around it. He called her a dog. So it's interesting. What Jesus does his response to, he creates a mini parable, right? Jesus does it a lot, doesn't he? It's his favorite way of teaching. That's his methodology. So he, he creates a mini parable when he interacts with her. Who, who are the children in the parable? Who do you suppose? The Jews, the Hebrews, right? <clears throat> um, and, and so it says, uh, bread is made, but it's for, it's for Israelites. And then, of course, who's, who's the dog? Um, dog was a derogatory way that Jews oftentimes referred to Gentiles. And you have to realize, you can't get around it by saying, well, they thought dogs were scavengers, which they did. In their culture, you wouldn't have a, you know, a little you know, Fido in your house kind of thing. They were scavengers who roamed the streets. Um, so that's not the way that they looked at, at animals. And some commentators, it, it's always interesting to me, many commentators in this passage, they will point out, which is true, well, there are two words for dog. One is like, ah, filthy scavenger. And the other is like, little puppy kind of thing. Not quite little puppy, just little dog. And they say, well, Jesus used the little dog word. And, you know, we have phrases like that, like, man, you're a real bulldog. You know, you really go after things. Or, oh, he had just such puppy eyes. Kind of trying to, like, get Jesus out of this kind of thing. This is an insult any way you look at it, okay? It, it might be a little bit less because he didn't use that word. It, it, is, it won't do to try to get Jesus out of this. And so, um, you know, he, he's, he's saying that. I mean, he's saying this, and, you know, it kind of sounds like, uh, uh, you guys ever watch uh, Seinfeld? Remember the soup Nazi? Like, no soup for you. He's like, no bread for you. I mean, he's just, no, uh-uh. It's not, it's not for you. And so what's so interesting is... So she agrees with Jesus' point about the bread. Yeah, it's baked for children. 
but then responds, well, even the dogs, though, and it's little dog and little crumb, they kind of sound like. She said, yes, but even the little dogs get the little crumbs that fall from the table. So she accepts this derogatory epithet, dog, and then she asks for the, the rights of a dog. Dogs at least get fed a little. Could I just get <clears throat> a little? So here's our question is, um, this is, this is concerning, <laughs> Beginning of chapter 15, like literally right before the story, Jesus just taught this. He said, it's not what goes into your mouth that makes you unclean. It's what comes out of your mouth that makes you unclean. And so here's the question is, well, if that's true, did something ethnocentric, racist, just come out of Jesus' mouth? If so, we have a problem. He is not the Jesus that Christians worship as the unblemished lamb of God who is without sin. Do you get it? I mean, this is, this is sort of the tension and sort of the problem here. Um, now, there, there are two very unique things about this passage that I think the author doesn't want us to miss. The first one is this is utterly unique in that it is the only time in the Gospels that Jesus loses a debate. Isn't that interesting? That stands out like a sore thumb. To a close reader, wait a minute, Jesus wins debate against these, like, these tough religious men who are educated. And, I mean, he, you know, he, he destroys them. And then he loses a debate to this woman who is a foreigner? I mean, that just, that stands out. It, it, should, it should make the reader go, wait, something's wrong. Something's off. I may not be reading this exactly right. <clears throat> so, how do you interpret that? Well, some, some interpreters say, see, this woman helped Jesus see his own ethnocentric view and helped him, you know, helped him kind of realize, man, I am kind of racist at the end of the day. I should be better, you know? And again, there are some problems with that. I would suggest there's a different interpretation. If you know anything about how Jesus interacts with people, he's always leading the conversation, isn't he? People will ask him about this, and he, he knows, he always takes the conversation where he wants it to go. How many times do you read about, you remember the, uh, the, the two guys on the road to Emmaus, the two people, and they're walking after the crucifixion? And it says, Jesus acted like he was going to walk past. Oh, you want me to stay? Right? Like, Jesus is always doing that kind of stuff. Like, he knows what's going to happen, but it always says, you know, he, he acted this way. Why is that? Because he wants to provoke he wants to do something that will provoke something out of you that needs to be drawn out. And he's brilliant that way. He's utterly brilliant. <clears throat> There's a second problem, though, with the, or an, an, an oddity about this text that should make the careful reader go, something more is going on here than I was first aware of. <clears throat> and that is this. Number two... He says, if you remember, I was sent only to the children of Israel. You know what's wrong with that? That's false. That's not a true statement. He's, he's, he's saying something. Well, then we have to see. Because see, later, that's not ever said. It's, it's said that um, it, the Messiah is sent first to the nation of Israel, then to the Gentiles. So here's the question. Whose teaching is this? Why is it in Jesus' mouth? <laughs> You see what he might be doing here? Any, um, any teachers in the room? Or if you've been a teacher? Okay. 
I used to be a teacher for a few years before I was on staff here. And many, many times in the classroom, what does a good teacher do? They don't just dispense the information, here's what you should believe. At least a good teacher doesn't do that. <laughs> they, they want to get them to the answer. And so they will play the devil's advocate, we say, you know, kind of language. Meaning a teacher will put forth an idea and they will play that idea out to see does it work. In logic, it's called reductio ad absurdum. You, you take an argument and you reduce it to potentially its absurdity. And if it doesn't work, it's a bad argument. Good teachers do that all of the time. So the fact that he lost the debate, and he doesn't lose debates, the fact that he's got words coming out of his mouth that he himself doesn't believe makes you go, oh. Because think about this. Do you think when he said this, um, when he kind of took this common Jewish stereotype and said, you know, the Gentiles are despicable dogs um, and they're really outside of God's family uh, scope of salvation. How many heads were shaking of, of his followers? Going, mm-hmm, you told her, you know, that sort of thing. Like, you know that was the case. They were saying early on, like, get her out of here. We don't have time for her. Jesus is doing two things. He's provoking something in her and he's teaching his disciples something. And the way he teaches them is he takes an idea that many of them believe, puts it in his mouth, and then spits it out and says, let's, let's watch how this plays out. He is a brilliant teacher. And what's so amazing, the author Matthew wants the reader to see, this Gentile woman shows greater awareness of God's plan for all humanity than even the religious leaders or even Jesus' followers. She has greater insight, which that makes sense. How many times did Jesus say that? Remember the Roman centurion that he heals? And then he goes, I haven't seen such faith in all of Israel. See, the author is trying to point something out. This Jesus is going about a different route. Now, <clears throat> there's still a question that we have to ask is, what about this whole order of salvation? First to the Jews, then to the Gentiles, is, is, okay, yeah, he's not a racist. In fact, this story shows the exact opposite. He was putting down the argument of, of an ethnocentric argument. But what about, what, still, what's up with the idea of first to the Jews and then secondly to the Gentiles? It's what you might call selective evangelism. Um, well, I mean, he does explicitly tell them at one point, the 12, he says, uh, don't go to the Gentiles or the, or the Samaritans in Matthew 10 and Matthew 15. Don't go among the Gentiles. Don't enter any town of the Samaritans. Go rather to the lost sheep of Israel. How do we explain this selective offer of salvation to the Jew first? <clears throat> first thing might be good to do is this. Go back. Um, Genesis chapter 11. Do you remember the Babel account? Um, God has uh, started his creation story over again with Noah. <laughs> and then immediately humanity takes a left turn and it's going down the exact same path of just continual rejection of God, spitting in his face. And so the Babel event in chapter 11 is sort of the last straw. And so um, in Deuteronomy 32, it tells us a story that it says God disinherited the nations. He said, Fine, you want to be done with me? Here you go. <laughs> You're done. Let's see how that works. It's a, it's a consequence. 
It's a punishment. He disinherits all of the nations. <clears throat> and then we're told, out of all of those nations that he disinherited, and this is Genesis chapter 12, he picks out one seed, one guy named Abram. And he says, I'm going to start a new people. You're, you're, my, you're my inheritance. I've disinherited everyone else. Now you're my inheritance. And what's so interesting is Genesis chapter 12, um, and again, you can go there and read the whole text. Uh, chapter 15 is, also gives some information. Chapter 17 gives this information of God picking out this guy, Abram, and saying, I'm going to do something special with you, but let me just kind of read it. Genesis chapter 12, verse 1. Yahweh said to Abram, Go from your country, this is one of the nations that God had disinherited, your people and your father's household, to the land that I will show you. And in 17 and 15, he says, I'm going to give you this land. And here's his promise. I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all the peoples of the earth, that's the disinherited people, will be blessed through you. Now, one thing in Hebrew, anytime you see a word repeated, 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 uh, that's like italicized. What word was repeated more than anything else there? Bless. That's, that's the key to this. The key is that I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pick you out, I'm going to make you into a, basically think of it like this, a vehicle. I'm going to make you into a vehicle that's going to deliver my blessing back to the nations that I have disinherited. Okay, so when we think about that start right there, then the question becomes, well, what were they supposed to be like, this people? Can you ever think of any examples that God said, here's, here's what kind of people I want you to be as this vehicle of mine bringing my blessing and my presence back to the disinherited people? See, as God's people, Israel had a very narrow, special, unique vocation or mission in life. The nation was intended to be, here's the phrase that's used again and again, and I'm sure you've heard it, a light to the nations, right? You're supposed to be a light to the nation, a place where the people of the world, all the, all the, all the disinherited nations, can come and see and experience the glory of the one true God. In fact, if you read Isaiah chapter 40 through chapter 55, we see this role repeatedly emphasized again and again. Let me read for you Isaiah 49, 3 and 6. <clears throat> it says, um, he said to me, you are my servant, Israel, in whom I will display my splendor. I will also make you a light for the Gentiles, that my salvation, listen to this, here's the purpose, that my salvation may reach the end of the earth. Do you hear the vehicle language there? Through you, and through what I'm doing in you, in this small seed that I've plucked out from all the disinherited nations, I'm going to bring back my blessing that was lost in the garden and my presence with you. So when Jesus first began his ministry, his first role was to call Israel to respond, hey, remember, you're supposed to be the light of the nations. That's who you're supposed to be. And we see this mission and this vision carried out continually. Uh, the Apostle Paul, if you read some of the latter part of the New Testament, he's a missionary for much of his time, going from one city, planting churches, staying there, training people, going to other places. And what we're told every single time 
the Apostle Paul, when he goes, it's that he, he, he first goes to who? He, to the, he goes to the synagogue. He goes to the Jewish community. And he says he brings a message there first. So, usually, small number of people respond. Some respond. Eventually, some, the portion, larger portion seem to reject it. And then he always says, now I will turn to the Gentiles. And he doesn't mean like, I'm done with you. He does it every single city. Every single city he goes in, he says there's an order to God's salvation. The order is first to the Jews, and then secondly to the Gentiles. So there's this um, pattern to it, but the idea is this is their Messiah that came through the vehicle of the Hebrew people. And so bringing it first to them, because they were intended to be that. They were intended to be there is the idea. But we do see in Jesus a a radical inclusion of people outside of the pale of what was considered acceptable. I mentioned earlier the Roman centurion in Matthew 8 and Luke 7. And if you remember his his, uh, commendation to him, because he says, hey, would you please come and heal someone? Jesus comes with him. Well, the centurion knows he's Jewish. He can't enter my home. Like, that, that, that's unclean. It's not even going to work out. So he goes, you know what? Just say the word. I'm a, I'm a commander. I know, I know what words do as a commander. Basically recognizing you're the commander of the universe. And Jesus goes, wow, you get what most of my people don't even get. That is absolutely amazing. And he commends him on that. Um, and what's so fascinating is again and again, Jesus... In, says when these sorts of things happen, in fact, in, um, I think it's Matthew's account of that story, this is how he ends that statement where he goes, man, I'm astounded by this Roman centurion. He says, I say to you that many from the east and the west, that means non-Jew, non-Hebrews, many from the east and the west will take their place at the feast with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But subjects in the kingdom, that's his own people, will be thrown outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's pretty phenomenal. He says there are going to be unclean people, in our mind, unclean people, <laughs> who will feast at the messianic banquet with the patriarchs of the faith. Jesus has a radical inclusivity. Remember the parable of the Good Samaritan? We've heard this one many, many times, I'm sure. And of course, it's not shocking to our ears uh, that you would put those two words, good and Samaritan, even in the same sentence. Um, you, you would never say something like that. Lying scum Samaritan, yeah, that, you know, that works. Filthy half-breed Samaritan, uh, heretic, heretical, deceiving Samaritans, like those would all fly. Those would all work. So you think about, you know, you know who even were the Samaritans? In in the Samaritans' own mind, they, they were descendants of, of the northern uh, tribes of Ephraim and Manasseh, going all the way back, and that they preserved the true Jewish um, identity and expression of their religion. The Jews understood, the Samaritans, that um, they, they were half-breeds. Back when Assyria came in and conquered the northern tribe of Israel, and they took the best of the best... They left the worst of the worst, and then they colonized it. They brought in people from other parts of the world, and those people intermarried. And their descendants are half-breeds in the sense of they're half-Hebraic, 
and half just whoever else these you know, colonists were who came in. And they also became syncretist, which is to say they took their Jewish faith and, oh, you're, you're my wife and you're from, you know, you're Scythian? What do you believe? And they kind of just did a little bit of this, you know. And then they set up an alternate place to worship, Mount Gerizim, which the whole point of Israel is, remember, there's, there's only one place you do sacrifices, and, and that's on the temple mountain. So they set up a, a rival place. So these groups hated each other. That's why whenever you read a place in the Gospels where it said, Jesus talked to a Samaritan woman, Jesus did it, you should go, oh, man, I bet they're going to get into a fight. Like, this is going to be a good one. Like, this is, you know, like stuff you see like in a riot or you're like, oh, man. Because stuff, horrible, horrible things would happen. In fact, um, things reached a, a climax. In 128 B.C., the sort of ruler king of, of uh, Israel, Jerusalem at the time, uh, king John Hyrcanus, he marched north and he destroyed Shechem, which is one of their places, and the Samaritan temple on Mount Gerizim. Uh, forced some conversions of the Samaritan, like you're going to become a Jew kind of thing. And, and, and there was bloodshed on, on, blood on, both, on both aisles there. But th- these people loathed one another, absolutely loathed one another. So that's why when Jesus tells the parable of the good Samaritan to the question, who's my neighbor? And then, of course, you know the story. And at the end, then when he even asks his hearers, he goes, so who was, who was the neighbor? The guy can't even bring himself to say Samaritan. He just said the guy that showed mercy. <laughs> he still can't even say it. They're so disgusting and awful people in their minds. And see, the inclusive vision of the kingdom, it's so different. Jesus tells a parable about 10, uh, ten lepers, He said, 10 lepers came, and they were healed, and they all left. And he said, only one came back. Oh, he was a Samaritan, and said, thank you. He was the grateful one. Jesus stepped out of his ethnocentric culture and did things and said things that that were just ludicrous, that were so crazy. He had this radically inclusive vision for what the kingdom of God is supposed to be like. In fact, the one time he got really chapped, remember when he turned over tables in the temple? What, where were those tables set up? It was the court of the Gentiles. <laughs> and he said, he's so mad because he's saying, this is supposed to be their place of prayer to meet God. And, and you're making it a marketplace. You're putting barriers. You're supposed to be the, remember the light of like to the nations, and you're putting up all of these barriers so they can't see the light. So Jesus seemed to be passionate about this idea. You think about the very, some of the last words in the Gospel of Matthew. You know the Great Commission? Remember that? Jesus says he's got his little ragtag followers. Some of them believe that some of them are still doubting this is after the resurrection. And he says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. He says, there, go, therefore, go and make disciples. Remember he said, of who? Of all nations. The word in Greek there is ethnos, ethnic. <laughs> is this an ethnocentric gospel? Oh, no. <laughs> this is a radically, almost uncomfortably inclusive gospel. The very last book of the New Testament, Revelation, listen to how John, the author, he says, this is, this is the vision that God gives him about like the final, you know, what it's going to look like when everything's fixed. 
And he says this, after this is uh, Revelation 7, 9, and 10. After this, I looked, and therefore before me was a great multitude that no one could count. It's a, listen, to, listen to how he describes them. From every nation, every tribe, every people, every language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, and they were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands, and they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. The final eschaton, the final picture, is a picture of this multi-diversity of language and culture. and It's this beautiful, beautiful picture. Paul the Apostle in Colossians 39 uh, I'm, I'm sorry, 3, 9 through 11, excuse me. It's not 39 chapters in Colossians, that'd be a long book. He writes this, um, Do not lie to each other, since you have taken off your old self with its practices, and have put on a new self, which is being renewed in knowledge and in the image of the Creator. Listen to this, I love this. He says, here, meaning in, in this kind of community, here there is therefore no Gentile or Jew, no circumcised or uncircumcised, no barbarian, no Scythian, no slave, no free, but Christ is all and is in all. And in this very similar way, Galatians 3.26, so in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith, not, not your ethnicity, through your faith. For all of you were baptized into Christ, have been clothed, you've clothed yourselves with, with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free. He's kind of repeating himself here. Neither male nor female, for you all one in Christ. If you belong to Christ, he ends up saying, then you are Abraham's seed. Remember that? This whole seed thing? <laughs> you are Abraham's seed if you are in Christ. It says, heirs according to the promise. And so, you guys, this is one of the radically unique things about the gospel, is that it has the power to include like nothing you will find. You know, the, there are some very, I would say, dangerous um, ideas in our world today um, that basically uh, there, there are things like... Um, Cultural Marxism, I'm sure you've maybe heard that term before, critical theory, Marxist, Leninist, all these sorts of things. There are these ideas, or actually worldviews is what they are, and they say, this is what they tell you, the most important thing about you is either your race, your gender, or your identity of, of some kind. That is the most important thing about who you are. And then they will tell you, and, and people who aren't in the group that you're, you're in, whatever that is, the, the people who aren't in that group, um, those are the people who have been oppressing you. Those people are taking advantage of you. Those people hate you. Those people don't want you to succeed. And then they say, um, you should feel slighted by that. Um, you should feel resentment. You should feel grieved and have a grievance toward those people. 
And then the end game for these ideas and worldviews is, in fact, the whole system is so wrong, we just need to bring it all down. That's a, that's a Marxist-Leninist worldview. It has destroyed millions of lives, and it can get its way into different ideas. I, I remember, gosh, 25 years ago, uh, right before I went to college, I, uh, I went to a two-week uh, worldview camp at Summit Ministries down in Manitou Springs. I don't know if any of you have heard of Summit Ministries. And it, it's, uh, they bring in just some of the best uh, speakers, college speakers, and that sort of thing. It's geared for late high school early college students, and it's talking about worldviews, about cultural issues, and it's primarily focused on students who are going to be going into a college campus, which can oftentimes be hostile to their faith, and there's a danger of going into a place and having not been exposed to those ideas, being just indoctrinated or uh, not having the ability to really sift through the ideas that will be approaching them. And I remember when I, this is like this 25 years ago, and I remember sitting there, and we had a whole section, it was, I don't know how much time you spent it, on Leninist Marxist worldview. And this was like, remember like the wall, like the Berlin Wall fell in like 89, and no, no more USSR, and I was kind of like, oh, this is so like, you know, come on, like that's dead, you know, that's not around right And it's so funny. And then recently, things start popping up, and all of a sudden I start going, wait a second, I know that worldview, that's, Marxist-Leninism. Oh, that's critical theory. Oh, and what I realized is, and they said this back then, and I didn't believe them. They said, ideas don't die, they go underground, and they will surface with new garb. <laughs> and the reason I say this, is, this sort of thing is so dangerous, because there is nothing more dangerous than a movement or ideas which, which essentially want to divide us. Division is a horrible thing. The gospel's end is the exact opposite of that. So that's the defensive part. We do need to be prepared to deal with ideas. But let me talk about the offensive part, which it's, it's, it's more enjoyable. The offensive part is that we, we shouldn't be just bystanders, watching TV, reading the news, getting angry, whatever, you know, getting bothered by things. Instead... We're called to be ambassadors. We're called to, in a positive way, engage. Listen to Paul in 2 Corinthians 5.20. He says, We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. And then he says, We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled, not divided. (laughs) Be reconciled to God. And then by doing that, being reconciled to each other. And I'll close with this last verse right here. One of the ways, in fact, the way that Jesus says, the way that, you know, remember the whole light of the world thing, what God's people are supposed to be? When Jesus said, let me distill that for you. John 13, 35, he says, see if you can finish the sentence for me. By this, everyone will know you're my student does he finish it? If you love one another, oh, that's unity. <laughs> that's our goal. That's our goal as ambassadors for Christ is to say, I'm, God is making his appeal through me. And the way that people are going to know that guy's been with Jesus is, man, look how they love each other. Look how they care for one another. 
Look how they're not divided. Look how they're not merely angry at each other all the time. That's going to be, he says, that's the stamp. (laughs) That's the proof. That's a Jesus person. Over these next couple minutes, we're going to take communion. We do this every week, and I mentioned earlier, don't don't feel compelled in any way to do that if, if you're comfortable doing it. We have the elements, and they're, they're safe. They have a little uh, seal over them, if you're interested. Here's, here's what I would say about this, and as we over, just over these next couple minutes, one of the things that I love about the physical nature of communion, um, it's something actually physical about this meal, is it doesn't allow me to think that what God is doing in our world is some abstract, I don't know, spiritual activity. It's about whole creation redemption. And what I also love about it is that it doesn't allow me to sit and watch someone do it. <laughs> it invites me, I actually participate in doing it. When I'm, when I'm doing this, when I'm taking this with you, I'm reminded of this idea that I'm a participant in the new creation activity of the world. My vocation is to be an image bearer of God's love and power into his good world. I'm a participant. So here's what I'd ask you to do. Go to one of the, I think, four. um, Grab it. Take it back to your seat, and uh, don't take it yet. Take it back to your seat, and let's engage in worship for just these last, like, four minutes, and then we'll all take it together, okay? If you're, if you're able, would you stand with me? Carefully opening them, right? Two things that we do every time we take communion, Jesus said. He said, you remember and you proclaim. You remember and you proclaim. What is it that we're remembering and proclaiming? Jesus has died. Jesus has risen. Jesus will come again. Say that with me. Jesus has died. Jesus is risen. And Jesus will come again. On that night that he was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it, gave thanks to God. And he said, this is my body. It's broken for you. Take it in remembrance of me. Let's do that. same way we're told after the meal the very last cup passed it around everyone drank after it passed it around he said this cup is my blood in a new covenant drink in remembrance of me let's take heavenly father we are so grateful that we get to be reminded of what Jesus has done how he has brought the the disinherited nations, that's us, into the family of God at great cost to himself, the cost of the life of his son. And God, may that be the most important thing about us. May that be our identity and may we live and serve and care out of that core identity that I am in the family of God. Thank you so much for that. God, would you go with us this evening, this week, as we step back into all the different circumstances that we just maybe stepped out of. Give us a renewed peace and vision 
about being kingdom agents in those places. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen and amen. You guys, thanks so much for being here tonight. I really, really missed you. So it's good being with you. If you would, uh, please grab this on your way out and find one of the receptacles in the back. See you guys next Wednesday.